Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay, so um, we've been uh, looking at this uh, this topic the last two weeks, and uh, I've been encouraging those who've been here to uh, experiment in your own life with working with the the habit of wanting and craving and seeing if there's a possibility of giving yourself some choice. Uh, If you have been working with it in the last week or so, uh, let me see, just a show of hands. Oh, good. Well, that's, now we're getting somewhere. So, any uh, insights, any uh, observations, reflections, questions, anything that's come up from exploring this in your own life? If not, I'll just proceed with the, with the talk. But um, here, uh, if you could, uh, excuse me, pass up like right behind you, uh, Isabella. Thanks. Um, What I'm working with, decided to work with this week was um, food. I think that I've been, I I have an uncomfortable feeling and I want to alter my experience and I can do that with food, although it's, it's so temporal and not effective and it doesn't feel healthy. And um, even if it's healthy food, it's just, it kind of numbs and dulls me, and I was just trying to, um, and I actually had a few days where I wasn't using it, and I feel like I've gone back to doing it again, and I had some freedom around it, and I'm even just trying to have some compassion for myself, because I've been doing this for a really long time, mm-hmm. and um, so I've really been trying to sit with the feelings that kind of draw me to food and I realized okay maybe that'll be the next talk you do is how to deal with feelings and I know you've actually done a talk of that before and it's helpful but um, Mm -hmm. I don't know I just um, and, and I do realize it's even good or bad feelings it's like So I don't know, That's that was my experience this week. And so I just realized just being aware of it is helpful, I think. Mm-hmm. And, so. and uh, you know, as, as we've been saying, so she's been working with food, and as we've been saying, these are lifelong and maybe lifetime, lifetimes patterns. So, um, you know, you don't expect things to change overnight. It's more a matter of, bringing some awareness to how we're usually uh, in places that we're usually unconscious. And as you start to notice, um, there's a price to pay for being more conscious. And that is, uh, it's very humbling. You see how you get caught. But it's actually, every time you see it, Rather than feeling discouraged, um, I would encourage you to feel uh, good that you're seeing it, as humbling as it is. And really, uh, the feeling of well-being every time you make a choice that's not the habitual way, rather than, oh, I blew it again, uh, that's that's one of the secrets of, of change, to let yourself feel good about when you are choosing, and then you're going for that positive feeling rather than the discouragement that comes when, when you don't. You know, just feel good and let it, let it be experienced. Um, and particularly to notice that urge and hang out with it for a little while with what the feelings are that you're going through. That's, that's where we usually get lost in the grip of that response to the stimulus. Just hang out with it. What am I feeling right now? As I, I've been mentioning that I've been working with um, uh, 
not reading when I'm eating. You know, not the, not the heaviest, not the worst thing in the world, but it is such a, a strong habit with me. I just notice as soon as I, at least this is in my, in my kitchen, as soon as I pull, uh, put the plate down and I'm about to sit down, it's like I'm looking for what <laughs> I can read. It's part of the meal, you know. It's, it's, not, it's, the, it's not even, it's the, the appetizer and the main dish, you know, is kind of like, okay, what is that? And I've been actually um, pretty good this last week. And uh, uh, the more that I've been aware of it, it's just, um, there's possibilities anyway. So start, like I said, start with, you know, the five-pound dumbbells rather than the 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 hundred-pound barbells. You know, start with something simple that you can at least play around with. Uh, I wanted to start the talk, if I can find, where's my books? There they are. Um, with a, a passage that uh, I really like. I've read this uh, before. It's been, it's been a little while. This is from Teachings of the Buddha, uh, edited uh, by Jack Cornfield and Gil Fronsdell. It's kind of uh, the Buddha's greatest hits of, <laughs> through all the traditions and from various sutras uh, and suttas. Some children were playing beside a river. They made castles of sand, and each child defended his castle and said, this one is mine. They kept their castle separate and would not allow any mistakes about which was whose. When the castles were all finished, one child kicked over someone else's castle and completely destroyed it. The owner of the castle flew into a rage, pulled the other's ch- other child's hair, struck him with his fist, and bawled out, He has spoiled my castle. Come along, all of you, and help me punish him as he deserves. The others all came to his help. They beat the child with a stick and then stamped on him as he lay on the ground. Then they went on playing in their sandcastles, each saying, This is mine. No one else may have it. Keep away. Don't touch my castle. But evening came, it was getting dark, and they all thought they ought to be going home. No one now cared about what became of his castle. One child stamped on his, another pushed his over with both hands. Then they turned away and went back, each to his home. It's kind of an intense, some intense images there. Lord of the Flies uh, (laughs) revisited. Um, And the, the part of that story that I uh, wanted to bring up for this talk is how important things seem to us, things seem to us in the moment, and then they're gone and we don't even remember what it was that had us in such a grip that we were just sure was going to do it for us, whether it's the food or the toy or the whatever connection or behavior. I've got to do this. This is going to make me feel better. And we are in that grip of that craving and that wanting and then craving becoming clinging or grasping. Uh, and then once we experience it, or not that long after we experience it, it's, it didn't quite do it. But we get caught in thinking, well, what's the next thing that might do it? So this is something to consider. Is there anything that's given you lasting happiness? Any experience anything, any object that has done it for you? 
Anything? Your piano. Okay, so that's, and, and that's something that, that gives you, each time you, exp- you do it, it gives you an uplift, right? And that actually is a kind of uh, point, next point that I'm making. There is a difference between the craving, the grasping that says, um, this is going to do it and, and it just fueling the fire of that wanting and that craving. And then there are things that give us real joy. Playing the piano, playing with your dog, you know, having, being with your grandchild or a loved one or being out in nature. I'm not denying that things give us pleasure. How wonderful it is that life is set up like that, that we can experience pleasure. I'm all for joy. (laughs) I'm not saying deny yourself. No, I'm saying really check in with what gives you a wholesome kind of pleasure that's fulfilling and that you're not saying, oh, this feels so good. Playing the piano feels so good for these 45 minutes, if I play it for five hours, it'll be that much better. At some point, you reach a, a point where it's a diminishing returns. And, and so to notice when there is that kind of feeling of openness and ease and, and expansion, which is very different from uh, craving. The difference between, uh, as we talked about it here, tanha, which is the word for craving, and chanda, which is a kind of desire that is a very fulfilling and expansive desire, desire to uh, be more compassionate or to play the piano or to uh, connect with a loved one. And so it's really important to, to notice the distinction between the two. When it becomes just another sandcastle, but it's got you in the grip. I've got to have this. This is where becoming more conscious can make a huge difference. On, uh, on retreats, there is a phenomenon that is very easy to see how the grip of wanting or craving can operate. If you've done a retreat, then you, you probably know uh, or at least know of, if not firsthand, the phenomenon of the Vipassana romance, where you know, in silence, somebody just catches your eye, and you just know that if you meet this person, that will be the answer to all your problems in your life. True love, out into the sunset, happily ever after, that's an interesting phrase, happily ever after. At the end of all, the, of all the, uh, the fairy tales, or many of the fairy tales, and they lived happily ever after. You ever stop to think of that? I mean, that's a fairy tale, right? <laughs> and they lived happily. And, and there we are pursuing that happily ever after. Will I ever find the thing that makes me feel happy, brings me happily ever after with my beloved. Anyway, on, on one retreat, some of you have uh, heard this, one of my favorite stories, where I, um, actually, uh, two Vipassana romance stories, I'll tell. This is, this is in my early days of practice, before I met Jane, uh, which is now 30 years, in my very first days. Uh, there was, um, I sat one three-month retreat, and uh, this was in 1979, and I had this incredible Vipassana romance. It, it, was, it was so bad, and this person sat just across from me. I sat on one, one aisle, and she sat on the other side of the aisle. It, it got so bad that um, I stopped coming to the hall. I, I just... You know, I just 
I couldn't come to the halt because as soon as I'd, I'd see this person, I was gone, right? And, uh, and I'd stay in my room. I stayed there for, for a while and uh, for, for several days. And then still this thought would come. I'd be sitting and kind of peaceful, and then all of a sudden the thought of this person, and then just it's like this wave of desire that I could feel coming from left field. Whoa, here it is. You know? And I just noticed, oh, desire, 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 because that was what was happening. Desire, desire, desire. Desire, desire, <laughs> desire, desire, desire. And I, I just stayed with it for, oh, each time the wave would come. It would come from maybe, you know, two, three, five, maybe ten minutes. If you're still noting desire, desire. After a while, almost always, this is so um, uh, revelatory, desire, desire, desire. And then it just stopped. It was boring after a while. Okay, enough already. This. Oh, I'm alive. Oh, here's a breath. And, here's a... and it was just, you could feel this. It was like that surfing the urge, as, as, one of, as Alan Marlett says in, the, um, in one of the articles. You're just kind of feeling this wave of wanting. And then at some point it would go. It does pass. That's the amazing thing. You, and you think, you're going to die if you don't act on it, but it passes. Another another retreat on uh, and this was around 1977 or 78 or so at uh, Yucca Valley, and there were oh maybe um, 100 150 people or so on the retreat, as there there are these days too. And out of 150 people, there's bound to be somebody who catches your eye. Well, there was. And then there was somebody who also I found kind of attractive, not quite as much as the first one. And then there was a number three and a number four. I had four. And I'd be doing, this is, you know, true confessions, I'd be doing walking meditation. Oh, there is number three going by, right? And what happened was that after about a week, number one left the retreat quite suddenly. All of a sudden, the Zafu was gone, empty space. And my first thought was, oh no, how could, how could they go? We didn't have a chance to meet. And I was bereft for, oh, maybe about uh, a day. And then after that, everybody else moved up a notch. <laughs> I didn't think about number one at all after that. You know. Number two became number one and so on. And it, it was so clear in this. I remember like it was yesterday. It was so clear that it was just desire looking for something to land on. And we think it's that object, that person, or that thing. But it's just this wanting. You ever see a, a little kid, you know, I want, I want, I want. They don't even know what they want, but they want something, right? And then, oh, I want that. Mm. I, I saw the, the new movie Babies uh, last night. Uh, anybody see it? It's, uh, you know, and, and there are these... You know, it's so we're so wired up. What is it that we're we're just curious about everything? I want this. I want that. And then all of a sudden, one kid is playing with his with his, and his brother's nearby, and he reaches for something. And the brother, it's like the sandcastle thing. He had, wasn't playing with that at all. All of a sudden, no, that's mine. You know, we just are looking for things to want on retreat. One way to, uh, that I've found really helpful in working with this, if you ever sit a retreat, uh, you probably know when you do walking meditation. How many people have sat retreats here, like at Spirit Rock? Or, okay. 
Okay, so there you are walking. You're just into your walking. You're just minding your own business. And you can sense somebody walking near you. What is the impulse? You've got to look and see who that person is. Or not, you don't have to, but there's a very strong urge in many people's mind. See, is this friend or foe first? Is it, uh, are they appealing? Are they attractive or, or not? And if you can, it's so interesting to hang out with that urge to look. And if you don't do anything else but make your intention, make noticing your intention to move or to look your focus of awareness, it's so powerful because there you are, ooh, I've got to look. And you, you think it's going to kill you if you don't look. Right? And you've got to look, you've got to look. And then they might, if you play around with this, and, they, and you hang out with it, and they go, they leave, and you don't look, something amazing happens. You survive. <laughs> wow. Amazing. And therein, I have learned so much about that, about the fact that those impulses can come and go and you don't have to act on them and you actually survive. This is huge. So um, last, last week we looked at eating And uh, we looked at, there was an article on the pleasure circuit, how we're wired up uh, to keep on uh, craving and um, having our object satisfy us, especially if it's an addictive substance, just keeps on fanning the the fires of craving. And then we looked at, uh, there's a wonderful article on hunger, and how mindfulness is being used with, uh, with eating. We discussed that last week. And I thought that um, this week, it was a really, I found, quite interesting, uh, and I thought we could explore together, this article on, um, by Soren Gordhammer, who's a, an old friend, called Disconnect, Trying to Live Mindfully in the Information Age. How many people read the article? Anyone? Just a just a handful. It's um, it's something that probably many of us uh, could use some more consciousness around. How many people are fairly plugged in, either looking at email or uh, the internet? Um, in their life, okay. yeah. So those who aren't, who's who's not, and uh, I, there might be some who aren't. A couple of people, okay. What's that? So yeah, remember, you know, I remember when I first went. Emailing and internet happened. You know, it was like, oh gosh, will I ever be able to figure this out? It didn't take us long to all realize that we can't live without it, right? (laughs) Or think that we can't live without it. And it is a kind of addiction. Uh, Let me ask, who looks at mm, email or Facebook or the internet more than they probably need to? If you would consider this, if you're really uh, honest, if you would consider this a possible issue in your life. Okay. So this is, 
you know, there's a, this is a place where we can just, everybody's got something. You know, is it the old Beatles song? Everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey, right? Uh, everybody's got something. So if it's, if it's not this, it's, you know, something else for, for most people. But um, just check it out. What goes on with us? Why is it that we keep on looking at our email? <laughs> what are we, you know, wh- what are we really, what are re- we really uh, looking for? Or what, if you just think for a moment, what, what do you think the motivation is when you just, in fact, you might even just uh, get quiet and if this is something that you find yourself doing, what, what is the source of checking your email? Or for some people, looking at Facebook or something, something like that. What, what goes on there? Let's see, do I have the... the You've got it right here. What, what do you think, what goes on there? Anyone? Yeah. Is, is it on? Is it on? Yeah, you yeah. put it right oh, close. We're just looking for entertainment, basically. Say again? We just want to be entertained. Well, okay, so looking for entertainment, that's, yeah. that's one thing, to relieve any moments of possible boredom. Right. Okay. And, and one thing I, w- I, I wanted to ask you about, about food, food and reading. Is it because taste is boring by itself? Uh, you mean, well, why I when would read? When you eat and you read... Is it because taste is not enough as entertainment? Oh, no, on the contrary. Uh, is it, do I read because taste is not enough? Right, I'm wondering about that. Oh, no, it's just, no, taste, when, when I've actually been putting down the reading, uh, it's incredible, all the taste that's there. Oh, the taste is enough. It's just that I'm not there for it. That's the... Uh, you know that that's that's the problem. There's no problem with the food. It's in in my attention. I think reading is really something we crave, uh, as the entertainment of the eyes. I think the eyes are very important. Yeah, we like to see. We like to see. We like to also uh, take in. Uh, we like to learn. I think yeah. there's something around that. Not not just wanting more information. Yeah. We crave information. And, and there's something, I think, that's, there's a wholesome element to wanting to grow and learn, but when it's an addiction, that's not so helpful. But anyway, let's get back to this uh, information age. Yeah, back, back there, is it Amita, right? Yeah, just uh, pass it behind you. Um, I, I know for myself with the Facebook thing mm. that it is... I think that it's about uh, getting a reaction and a response or seeing a little tiny reflection of myself back. Mm. So, because what will happen is I'll I'll post something, a little comment or some little whatever status update, and then I will obsessively check back to see if anybody responded. It's as if if I'm sort of, I'm in an empty room with no mirrors or reflections, and I'm saying, am I here, am I here, am I here? And I, and I really do feel that feeling. And like when someone responds, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm here. Because look, I must be here because someone else said hi back. It's like, you know, shouting into a canyon or something and being satisfied with the echo back. Yes. We are, we are looking for some kind of proof that we're here and that we count and that, we're, that we are needed by others or that others care. So an external referenting, validation. Yeah, I, I would say that's, that is a key that I, when I look, uh, when, when I look at the, the, the situation, yes. Anything, there were a few other, was it Deb? Deborah? Hi. Um, I thought that I really liked email because sometimes I felt, you know, same thing. I was, you know, it, it stopped my loneliness. So if I got email, wow, that means... Somebody is thinking of me. That's great. Now, yeah. And now I have a job where I have to read my boss's 
emails and digest them. He gets hundreds of these suckers every day. And it's gotten to the point where the allure is gone. It's just gone. I don't even, you know, it's like people say, you haven't responded. I said, I'm burnt out. I can't do it. Uh-huh. So it, it's, it, it is really interesting, particularly with the Facebook stuff, because I see people, they live on it. I mean, a lot of my friends that are now older, maybe retired, that's their life. And it's kind of, you know, I'm watching all that, and it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're looking at. Great, thanks. But behind, there was somebody else? Oh, yeah, Ali. Um, I write um, as part of my work, and I noticed, so checking my email was the th- the habit I was trying to work with this past week, and I noticed that I actually, sorry, I actually check my email when I need a break, when my mind needs a rest, but it's not a rest to check my email, it's just a distraction, but I'm not checking it because I'm bored, I'm checking it because I need a rest, so it's this very unuseful intervention. That's, yeah. that's, what, I, <laughs> that's yeah. what I noticed. I would be much better to move away from the computer and go and take a walk and allow my mind to work out whatever it's stuck on. Yeah. But instead, it's so irresistible because it's right there. I think, oh, I'll just check my email. And then it's, yeah. Yeah. It's insidious, isn't it? it we think, oh, this is going to do it. It's kind of like, you know, the, the, the cocaine or the, uh, you know... Oh, this is going to feel so good, but like we were talking about in the pleasure circuit last week, that it's it's a it's the diminishing returns where it doesn't actually do it; it it actually is uh, contributing to more of the of the problem, more of the stress. But still, we do it. Lots of compassion needed for this. Yeah. Any anyone else? Yes, Sarah, up here. You just pass it up. It's okay. Um, it was Your kind thoughts. of already mentioned before, but I feel personally like there's just a general nervousness around keeping up with the world, you know. And, you know, I do a lot of scheduling my work on, you know, through email and whatever, and it's kind of like this anxiousness of like, oh, did somebody cancel? Did they shift? Do they now need an appointment? Did they, you know, and it's kind of like, just like in the race to keep up, basically. And if I don't return an email right away, somebody emails again and says, did you get my email? <laughs> like, you know, it's just like <laughs> I did like an hour ago. <laughs> it's like not that long. So, you know, that's kind of what I, what I work with. And it's yeah. particularly obvious when I come off retreat, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of like a, like a, 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 a a treadmill mentality where you're just kind of yeah. on this particular and this momentum. this fear of like not being able to keep up. Like I'm going to lose out on work or I'm going to, something is going to, you know, somebody's going to die or be in the hospital and I'm not going to know right away or, you know, whatever it is. It's mm-hmm. this, yeah. As, uh, as Patricia Ellsberg uh, talks about it, the syndrome, uh, FOMS, fear of missing something. <laughs> that many of us are caught in, you know, or that we won't be able to keep up. It's kind of, it's interesting when you go away for a little while and you're, you're unplugged and there's both this feeling like, oh, the world is still going on without me and I'm still functioning fine without it. And then you come back and there's all of these emails <laughs> oh God! <laughs> and uh, it, it, well, it's it's great for some people, and for others, it's like, oh my goodness, I'm I'm so far behind. How can I ever catch up? It's, there's that feeling too. Um, anything? Yeah. Anything else? Here, here. Just uh, wait for the mic. I just want to say, like, the good things about the internet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In praise of the internet. Yeah, because I. I live far away from my country, from Israel. So for me, it's the really good tool to connect with my friends. And I do have some moments when I feel disappointed when I don't have emails. But I feel like it's almost coming home and not having any um, 
messages on your voice machine for me. That you're not having any uh, messages on my voice answering machine. Uh-huh. So it's almost like a telephone. Yeah. But people don't use the telephone anymore. Right. So it's a way to stay connected on yeah. on some level. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying this is something evil. <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's an amazing way to stay connected. But at some point, it's there. There can be a sense of um, pseudo connection and, right. and it's disconnection. This is. Let me read from uh, from Soren's article. Mm-hmm. The question for most of us is not whether we will use these technologies, we will, but how we're using them. Is it mindfully and, effective, and effectively, or is it addictively living at the mercy of our devices, our attention bouncing around like a ping-pong ball from one website or one text message to the next? In other words, are we living what I call disconnectedly connected, in touch with others and the world through technology, but largely disconnected from our own experience. When we live disconnectedly connected, we become addicted, continually looking for satisfaction through our gadgets. Maybe the next email will finally satisfy me, or that next news story, or that next text message, since neither the technologies nor their content can ever provide us any lasting satisfaction, we continually seek new short data hits like popping pills, jumping from one to the next, hoping that somehow we will at last find ease. Information has become the new drug of choice in our day and time. And this from the Dalai Lama. Where the concern uh, I saw the Dalai Lama express at a recent peace summit in Vancouver Uh, was against developing more affection for the devices in our lives than for the people. These devices, he explained, have no ability to show empathy back. Here's two studies. In a Sheraton Hotels study of 6,500 business travelers, 35% said they would choose their PDAs or blackberries over their spouses. <laughs> and in a study by Pew Research, almost one-fourth, 23% of people said that they always feel rushed. Um, so this is, um, this is a major issue in, in our time. And the more we become conscious of it, not with judgment, but just to see that we have a choice, uh, the more possibility of freedom from this 21st century drug. The other article that this is pointing to, particularly uh, uh, Amita, you, you beautifully articulated it um, at the, uh, when, when you spoke, is... Underneath this, this wanting, this craving, particularly around the information stuff, is some kind of validation for our existence. And I encourage you to check out um, Santi Caro's article called Selfaholics Anonymous. He starts out, hello, my name is Santi Caro, and I'm a selfaholic. And I'll just read a little of this, and then we can explore a bit. I've often asked myself questions such as, on what am I most dependent and stuck? Which habits and behaviors keep driving me into trouble and suffering? What is the worst drug in my life? The response that makes most sense to me is, Self, ego, this knot of self-centered identity that I keep recreating and rebirthing, even though I have Buddhist beliefs, and he was a monk for many years, that dissolve the reality of self as an entity. There it is again and again, sometimes less destructive and sometimes a real pain in the ass, and I'm never free when it's there or here. Um, I pursue it 
Oh. The word addiction captures the power of how badly we are stuck in and deluded with self. One advantage the alcoholic has in working the 12 steps as compared to many of us who dabble in Buddhist teachings is that the alcoholic has hit bottom. Good, good timing. <laughs> All right, we're ready. <laughs> Perhaps a few has hit bottom perhaps a few times and more fully acknowledges the degree of suffering we're capable of inflicting on ourselves and those we love. By looking into the parallels between the work an addict must do to stay clean and the Buddhist practitioner's work, I hope to help the latter, such as me, make the depth of commitment that is necessary for lasting liberation. Even if we know better. This is the root of all the addictions. Somehow to soothe this sense of self, somehow to, to, to satisfy this ego that says, this moment isn't enough, and I need this to be fulfilled. Even if we know better, you might have tasted something very profound in your practice that has helped you see through this illusion of self. But still, as the, the Buddha says, it, it might seem easier to conquer a thousand warriors a thousand times than to conquer oneself. This is the core addiction. And yet, this is the way to freedom, to see it again and again. And to see it with deep compassion because it is so intrinsic or so much a part of our nature. But like an addict, uh, and maybe we'll we'll look at the twelve step stuff next week. But like an addict, the first step is admitting that you have a problem, admitting that you are uh, are caught in this addiction. And then, like an addict. Mm, the more you can see, the more you can admit that you have a problem. And the more you, whether you call it a problem or just uh, or, or the, the universal problem, the more you can um, bring some understanding and, and compassion and wisdom to it, then uh, you're not only serving yourself, but everybody else, because we're all reminding each other in it. Pema Chodron, uh, I'll just share a couple more things and we can open it up. Pema Chodron, in uh, this book, Hooked, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. It's edited by Stephanie Kaza, Buddhist Writings on Greed, Desire, and the Urge to Consume, Hooked. And she, in her article, um, how we get hooked and how we get unhooked. She says, um, the Tibetan word, which is uh, usually translated as attachment, but more descriptive translation might be hooked, is the word shenpa, S-H-E-N-P-A. When shenpa hooks us, we're likely to get stuck. We could call shenpa that sticky feeling it is an everyday experience. Even a spot on your new sweater can take you there. At the subtlest level, we feel a tightening, a tensing, a sense of closing down. Shempa thrives on the underlying insecurity of living in a world that is always changing. We experience this insecurity as a background of slight unease or restlessness. 
We all want some kind of relief from that unease. So we turn to what we enjoy, food, alcohol, drugs, sex, work, or shopping. In moderation, what we enjoy might be very delightful. We can appreciate its taste and its presence in our life. But when we empower it with the idea that it will bring me comfort, that it will remove my unease, we get hooked. Those of us with strong addictions know that working with habitual patterns begins with the willingness to fully acknowledge our urge and then the willingness not to act on it. This business of not acting out is called refraining. Traditionally, it is known as renunciation. What we renounce or refrain from is not food, things, sex, or relationship per se. We renounce and refrain from the Shempa. When we talk about refraining from Shempa, we don't mean trying to cast it out. We mean trying to see this Shempa, this attachment, this being hooked, particularly to our sense of self, clearly and experiencing it. If we can see it just as we are starting to close down, when we feel the tightening, then the possibility exists to catch the urge to do the habitual thing and to choose not to do it. So this being hooked on what's often called selfing, this is what I need to make me happy. This is the the core addiction. What do you need to make you happy? Really, being free of the need to find something to make you happy. (laughs) Therein lies the freedom. How can we arrive at that? By just settling into this moment, just as it is. By seeing that this moment has everything that you need. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, that this moment is complete, just as it is. And any movement out of it is what is called becoming, this urge to make the next thing happen. Now, again, I'm not saying this is a a bad kind of a thing. We want to create, we we have visions, we have... We have um, uh, inspiring, um, inspiring goals. So it's not that we should just be like a vegetable all the time. But noticing where the source is, is it to validate ourselves more? Is it to say, oh, this will make me feel even better and miss out on the completeness in this moment? This is the core addiction, the selfaholic recovery that we're all in. So I would just um, just invite you for a moment just to go inside first. And you might play around first with the information addiction. And imagine yourself there by your computer or your smartphone or whatever it is that's your gadget of choice. And the urge comes, oh, time to check my email. Just notice where that is coming from. Not with any judgment at all but just to see that subtle self-validation if it's behind there. Oh, who wants to connect with me? Who cares about me? Who do I have to respond to because I'm important? Because they need me. And if you can just hang out with that for a a few moments and then go ahead and respond not out of self-validation but just out of appropriate response. You might have a whole other illuminating 
awareness. So you're not responding from Shempa, you're just responding from what needs to happen. And to do this with a real light touch, keeping your sense of humor and seeing this is the predicament that we're all in, most of us anyway, looking for the outside to confirm that we count, that we're real, that we're important, that we exist. Great compassion. Great compassion. And a sense of humor. And a commitment to really waking up. So this week, I, I really encourage you to, if you want to play around with the information, addiction, or seeing what for you is an area that you can just explore this wanting, this craving, and seeing if you can connect with that selfing underneath it. <clears throat> so any questions, uh, comments before we close? Okay, so we'll just do a short loving kindness now. Mm. Great compassion. And appreciate the, the place in you that really wants to wake up to it all. And send some loving kindness towards yourself. May I see clearly through the craving and the wanting and the selfing in the mind. May I connect with that place of peace and ease that sees this moment as complete. May I Connect with all the love and wisdom inside and share my love well. May I deepen my understanding and share that with everyone I know. And then sending it out, may all beings see through their craving and wanting and suffering. May all share their love well. May all wake to the highest happiness. And may our coming here together be a benefit to all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. for your attention. <clears throat> Work with it this week or play with it this week. Not just, uh, don't just come here for entertainment. You know. <laughs> Take it on as a, as a practice for yourself. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.